Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. My wife said it was uh, subtly Christmas, so uh, th- anytime I have to wear a tie, carry out a pair of pants and a tie, and I hold it up, I say, what do you think? And usually she goes, no. We go back two or three times before we find something that will work. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Tim for the opportunity to be with you today, and uh, Sean and John and Annie, it was really great uh, music. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Today we continue in a series that Tim started last week about the names of God. And um, uh, names are interesting. Uh, By the way, I'm just going to put this right out there. There's nothing going on after this service. We don't have to get to the next service. So I'm just going to talk for a really long time, okay? (laughs) Um, You have a last name, Averill. We don't we don't know what it means. It doesn't have to, it may, probably means something, but we don't know. Uh, but in days gone by, uh, someone would have a second name attached, Catherine the Great, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, there are probably others that we can think of, Marvin the Butcher. I mean, there, there are all kinds of, of, of names that were attached to people that provided a sense of meaning and identity to who they are. And so in this series, we're looking at different uh, names that the um, ancients, uh, the four, forefathers of the Israelite nation, uh, attached to, to God. And today, uh, El Roy, not Elroy, but El Roy in Hebrew, the God who sees. And I want to suggest to you today that seeing is very important. The ability to see is so very important um, a few weeks ago, I was in a real crummy hotel uh, outside of the Newark airport, and for some reason, I had this random thought, what would it be like to not be able to see? Do you ever have random thoughts? I, we all do, right? I don't know why I thought that. I just did. So I made a decision that I was going to close my eyes and for 10 minutes just kind of wander around and do what I needed to do. Uh, so in this little hotel room, from the bathroom to the crummy chair to whatever I was doing, it was frightening. It was completely uncomfortable and discombobulated. There was no way I was going to make it 10 minutes, and I didn't. But it reminded me of how important seeing is. When was the last time you just stopped and said, Dear God, thank you that I can see. Thank you for the gift of, of, of sight. And you know, seeing isn't just good for us. It's good for the things and the people that you see, for the other cars that are on the road. It's really good if you see them. And for the other people in your world, it's really good to see them. 
It's really good to recognize that, that they're there, that they have, have a story, that, that we have a chance to be uh, with them and do life uh, with them. Our scripture today comes from Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave whose name was Hagar. Sarah, had to, Sarah said to Abram, You see, the Lord has prevented me from having children, so go into my slave, so it might be that I will obtain children by her. Now, if that doesn't prove this is a messy story from the get-go, how strange is that? The wife says to the husband, go into the bedchamber with my slave girl and we'll have children that way. Abraham listens to the voice of Sarah. He went into Hagar, she conceived, and when Hagar saw that she'd conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. In other words, she looked to Sarah and said, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, I can have a baby and you can't. And that may be a big deal in our world. I will tell you that in my experience years ago when I was full-time in ministry, some of the most painful meetings I had with people were with young couples who could not have a child. And they would just pray with me, pray for us. We so want to have a baby. So for Hagar to throw this up in Sarah's face, uh, not a nice, nice thing. And so Sarah takes it out on Abraham. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave for you to embrace. And when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abraham says, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Your slave is in your power. Do to her as you please. So Sarah dealt harshly with her and Hagar ran away. Now keep in mind, this isn't like you get mad in Fort Pierce and you run away to Lakewood Park or you run away to Stewart. There's not lots of towns popping up back in those days. Uh, she runs out into the wilderness, maybe to some other Bedouin community. Maybe somebody takes her and maybe they don't. But the scripture says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Doesn't it seem odd to us that God would tell a slave, go back and obey your master? Well, that is completely, I mean, we don't believe in slavery. We don't, we don't buy that today. But that was a part of the biblical world. Return to your mistress, submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for their multitude. So Hagar, obviously touched by this moment, she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy, the God who sees. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? And there's a well there called Bir Lahoy Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. Hagar bore Abram a son. Abraham named his son Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And that story continues in the chapters that, that come along. And we find 12, 13 years later uh, that another baby is born, the baby of promise. Sarah has uh, baby Isaac. And at that time, 
uh, Hagar doesn't run away because Sarah was mean to her. At that time, Sarah says, I don't want you around here. You're out. And Hagar is kicked out, removed from the community, and, and separated so that uh, Sarah can have Abraham and Isaac, and Ishmael is no longer in, in the picture. This is a little-known story, but very typically biblical. A few weeks ago, Pastor Tim was talking in the grieving service, and he said, you know, in one of the sermons on grieving, and he was, he was talking about how, how biblical stories are so much that we can relate to because the people there felt just like we do, broken, alone, scared, grieving. We all have stories like that in our lives. This is a messy story. It's a story that doesn't follow any norms. It's about somebody who's a slave, um, a loser, someone who did not win the lottery of life. She's cast out. There's a lot of loneliness and pain. When you think about what happens to her, it's not, it's not a pretty thing. But this is also a story about a God who sees. And if you're here today, and in your life, you've been broken, if you've had trouble, trouble in relationships, if you've been used, if you've struggled with fear and depression, if your story includes confusing birth certificates and broken genealogies and broken hearts, don't just pass through the room, pull up a chair, sit down, listen to this story, because maybe there is something here that can be a blessing to you. I'd like to begin today by talking a little bit about what we humans do to each other. And it's unfortunate, and it's not pretty. Hagar is used. She is property. Perfectly fine in the biblical world, not something we want to practice today. She's given to Abraham. Is it against her will? Well, we don't know, but it doesn't really matter. She's a slave. She doesn't have a will. And if, I mean, it's just, it's just completely immaterial. She is property. She conceives and mocks Sarah, and Sarah makes her life miserable. So miserable that Hagar runs away. And of course, later, as I mentioned before, Later, as I said before, after, after Isaac is, is born, uh, um, Sarah kicks Hagar out of the community completely. And the result of that story is we have the biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sarah is able to create the story the way she wanted it to go, the pretty way. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs aren't Abraham, Ishmael, and whoever, but the patriarchs follow the line of promise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Old Testament world we see in this story, and in many stories, is divided into two camps, the good ones and the bad ones. Sarah versus Hagar, Isaac versus Ishmael, the child of promise versus the child of the flesh, here 4,000 years later, are we doing any better? 
Or isn't it still the case that we love to divide people into the goods and the bads, the for and the against? This camp, my camp, your camp, this tribe, your tribe, Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal, Seminole fan or Gator fan. And I, I, I want to tell a story here because I learned something that actually uh, helped me. Uh, you have a team, Chris? Steelers. Okay. I brought this. I used the Steelers in the first service. I just, because uh, I knew the McBees, that was their team. If the Chiefs play the Steelers, and they probably have, and they probably will, I'm going to want the Chiefs to win because Kansas City is my tribe. It's, it's my group. It's my bunch. And I want my bunch to beat your bunch, even though half of the bunch on your team used to play for our team. What's that about? But as a Christian person, if your team wins, I want to have the, the character to call you up and say, good for you, good job. Um, wasn't how I wanted it to go, but that makes you happy, so I'm happy for you. It doesn't always have to be that it's got to be my way. It doesn't always have to be that my camp's going to include my people and the rest of you are getting kicked out. Unfortunately, some people think that this is the way that life should be, that we should be dividing up into the good ones and the bad ones, setting aside the poor, setting aside those that, that live on the wrong, wrong side of town. Some think that this is normal. Some think that this is even spiritual. Some religious groups thrive on who is in and who is out. Some people think religion is, is about this. We're in. If you want to be in, be like us. But spoiler alert, this is not how Jesus treated people. And sure, you can find instances in the Bible that seems like camps are being created. Here, Sarah does it to Hagar. But if you look at the stories of Jesus, what you'll see time and again, over and over and over, is that Jesus embraces people we wouldn't think he would be embracing. He heals the Roman's servant. He's not, a, he's not mean and nasty to the Romans. Jesus is nice to the hated Samaritans. All sorts of broken people come, come rushing to Jesus because he welcomes and puts his arms around all kinds of folks that the Pharisees were throwing away. Well, the results of our tribalism, uh, the results of, of shunning, the results of our caste systems that we create, whatever you want to call it, is always pain. The Bible doesn't tell us what Hagar felt, but I think we can assume that she felt what all of us feel when you find yourself by yourself, set aside, insulted, pushed down, cast away, and left out. If you're like me, you have probably lots of stories. I've lived long enough, thank God, I've, I've lived long enough that I've collected all sorts of stories of, of rejection and pain. And I won't uh, trouble you with my adult stories, um, but I will tell you a story from when I was three-ish, three and a half. We lived in Midland, Michigan, and back then, parents let the kids go out and play. In fact, the door opened at 7 o'clock in the morning after breakfast. Out you went. Go find something to do. Don't come back till I call you for lunch. So I was across the street at, at Virginia Avenue Park, and some big boys came along. They were probably eight. 
hey, little kid, you want to play with us? I said, sure. I was so excited. Got to play with the big boys. I don't remember what we did. Wandered around, but it was fun for a while. And then they decided we were going to go down the street. And down the street we went, uh, next to the McDonald's, there was a field uh, which had lots of weeds and cockleburrs, and it rained a lot. It was really muddy, and they decided they were going to have some fun with Jeff. So they pushed me down, and they rolled me around in the mud, and I got all covered with mud, and I got all covered with scratchy cockleburrs, and then they laughed and made fun of me and left. And I did what we do when we're alone and hurting. I cried. I cried and I cried. You know, the shock of being pushed away, the shock of being thrown away is so very painful. Fortunately, the McDonald's man saw me, uh, went up the street, got my mom. They came and got me cleaned up. But that was my first life experience of what it feels like to be thrown away. We have all at one time or another been thrown away, been set aside. And sometimes we carry these wounds for our entire life. You know, I'd like to think that we'll read a book or go to a counselor and it'll all be fixed, but sometimes we wake up and we're 40 or 50 or 60 and that thing still hurts. I had a friend throw me away, uh, gosh, it's 15 years ago anyway. It took me a year and a half to even begin to get over that. Some of the things that we that happened to us in childhood, we, we carry into adulthood. And, and being human, we don't want people to see our brokenness. We don't want people to know uh, the, the dark places. We don't want them to, to see the sadness. We, so we, we, we put on this show. See, I wore a tie today. Isn't it great? Look at my tie. Aren't I nice? Isn't it good? When, when what's happening inside? Well, I can't tell you that, but just look at my tie. I didn't realize that, but that's how I was raised. We, we grew up in a blue-collar part of town. We drove across the state line to Prairie Village, Kansas, to go to church because that's where the rich people lived. I grew up in a blue-collar side of town, but we drove across the state line into Prairie Village to, to join and attend Corinth Country Club because that's where the rich folks went. It was important for my mom uh, to, to have us in a place where everything looked good, uh, where nobody knew that we were broke and nobody knew that my dad was an alcoholic. Nobody knew that, that our family was, had all sorts of trouble. She had a recurring dream. Uh, she actually, for, for somebody that didn't let you see in, she did tell me about this dream where she's in the shower and she's, of course, what you are in a shower, which is naked. And the shower curtain is falling down. And she's doing everything she can to hold up the shower curtain. And just out here at the door of the bathroom, her entire family is looking in. And she's struggling, doing the best she can, holding it up so nobody can see the wounds. Nobody can see the hurts. Nobody can see that she, that we, aren't perfect. What Hagar felt, what we have felt, we do not want. We do not want to have our lives filled with, surrounded by, and all mixed up with all kinds of pain. And so, in this story, there's some good news. God goes looking for Hagar. Sarah threw her away. And evidently that was okay with Abraham. 
And who knows who else in the community that was okay with. But it wasn't okay with God. God was not okay that she was going to be out there alone. So he goes looking for the broken. And it's kind of fun. I kind of like it that um, here we have this story on this day because it's Advent. Uh, we're coming into Christmas. And, and one of the lovely pictures that I have in my brain about Christmas is that God comes looking for us. People talk about Easter and the resurrection being a miracle. Sure, sure, of course. But without an incarnation, without a birth, there'd be no Easter. There'd be no resurrection. So the first miracle is that God is up in heaven and he looks and he sees you. And he says, you matter. You are worth it. And you know, every time you think of Christmas, I hope you feel the warm feelings, the warm fuzzies of sitting around the tree and listening to the carols. But I hope you remember too that God is sending a capitalized message to you that says, you are worth it. You matter to me. This story of Hagar, it's not just about her. It's not just about us at Christmas time. I want to suggest to you that this is a recurring biblical theme. Now, there's no question. You go looking for uh, certain things in the Bible, you'll find it. If you want to look for negativity in the Bible, you can find it. You want to look for tribalism in the, in the Bible, you can find it. But I love looking for love in the Bible because I believe, as 1 John says, that God is love. And when I look at the great stories of the Bible, they're filled with this theme of God who is looking to find us and bring us home. In Luke chapter 15, we have the famous story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. Well, when I was a kid, I, was, I grew up in a church that was very tribalistic. And so I was taught, that's the bad sheep. That's the bad one. It ran away. Go get it and spank it. In fact, I was taught that the shepherd broke its leg and carried the sheep over its shoulders so that the sheep could heal and the sheep would learn to be bonded to the shepherd and not run away. Well, there's nothing in the story that says the sheep was bad. There's nothing in the story that says the good ones are in and the bad one is that one that's running out. What this story is about is a shepherd who's so loving, so full of care, he's not willing to let one be out of the fold. He wants every single one of his sheep to know that they matter. And so he leaves the 99 and he goes for the one and he brings the one back to the group. The parable of the, the sower. I was taught when I was a child, because my church was very tribal, that it was about being good soil or being bad soil, being fertile ground or being hard. And you better make sure you're good soil, because if you're bad soil, you're out. If you're good soil, you're in. And I want to suggest to you this parable is not called the parable of the soils. It's not called the parable of the good soil or the bad soil. It's called the parable of the sower. And what it's really about is a sower, a farmer, a God who has so much seeds, barns full of seeds, that he's casting it everywhere, everywhere he goes, any place where there is, regardless of what the soil is like, he's casting his seed. He's trying to throw out there his message of love, 
his message that you matter wherever you're at. No matter how ugly or broken or nasty you think your life may be, God in the story of the sower is throwing out this wonderful message of love. And so we, like Hagar, should hear a message. God saw her. You matter. I love you. Christmas time, God sees us. We matter. That's why they call the gospel the good news. Oh, and if we can really, I used to say, you know, when we, the day that somebody finally realizes that God loves them, you roll out of the bed differently. Your foot hits the, hits the floor a little differently. You got a little hop, a little step, a little jump in your life because there's really good news. We are loved by God. And that'd be a good place for this sermon to end. God loves us. Ah, oh, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I, I got more time. We got nowhere else to go. You're my prisoners. I want to suggest to you that when, when we are given a gift, it's not just for us to consume. We're not here in this life just to be consumers. But the good that you have, the benefits that you have, they're to be shared. We don't know what Hagar did, but I would like to think that she said, oh my gosh, I named this God Elroy. He sees me. I got to help. I got to make sure other people, you don't, I hope she spent the rest of her life telling people, don't feel lonely. God sees you. Don't feel broken. You're not alone. God sees you. I hope she spent the rest of her life doing that. We, if we're to be followers of Jesus, that's what he did. He saw people. He welcomed them. It's fine to know that God loves you. It's fine to know that at Christmas, God reaches down and, and, and gives you a message. But we're invited to do something with that. To look out and see other people. So many times we live on remote control. So many times we are on autopilot. I want to suggest to you it's not that hard to see people. Just lift up your head and look around. End of October, last weekend of October, my wife and I went up to Jacksonville to the Vice Star Arena. Uh, who was the concert? Luke Bryan. Uh, we went to hear him because we like both kinds of music, country and western. My son-in-law, David Phillips, is one of the managers of the Vice Star Arena, and so he got us sweet tickets. How sweet. And we got into the place, and we got ushered in because we were the special ones. We were amongst the special group that day. We rode up the escalator, and there's a whole line of security people, and they're checking you and making sure that you're safe and looking at your ticket. And the very last person has a wristband because all of the special people wear wristbands. Very tribal, very, very uh, communal here, this, this story, because this is a special place. And I noticed as as uh, got to the last person that it was like a, a cattle trough, and she was just putting a wristband on one after the next, after the next. And I decided that wasn't going to work for me. And so when, we, when I got up to her, she put the wristband on, and I didn't move. I'm just going to stand here until you look at me. She finally looks up, 
And I smiled. And I said, thank you. You know, sometimes people don't need us to give them some gospel sermon. They just need us to look them in the eye and smile and say hello or say thank you. The love of God begins with just simply looking at another person and letting them know that you matter to me. A few weeks ago, my niece and my great-niece came to visit. My great-niece is six years old. Her name is Aria, and I always take her to breakfast or lunch when they visit. And I took her up into Sebastian for lunch to Captain Hiram's, and we watched the seagulls, the, the pelicans, and the people bring in fish that they caught, and she colored, and I ate a chicken sandwich, and when we were done, uh, I thought, maybe six-year-old Aria would like to visit the chocolate shop that my neighbor owns. So we're driving, and we go to the chocolate shop in Sebastian, and as we're going inside, I'm remembering that my neighbor had a health scare, and I hadn't really checked up on it. And so we go in, and Little Aria's looking in the cases at all the different kinds of chocolate, and I asked my neighbor, now you had a health scare, how are you doing? She says, um, I have an inoperable brain tumor. There's nothing they can do. I have pain, I'm losing sight and hearing on the right side. She said, I've been praying for God to take me. I pray, dear God, I've done everything I need to do. My kids are raised. My kids are healthy. Why don't you just take me? I don't understand. Why doesn't God just take me, Jeff? And she said, then one night I had a dream, and in my dream I was in heaven. I was walking in a meadow with my dad. And my dad said, T, it's not your time. There's someone that you need to help. There's someone on earth you need to care about. And her dream was over and she woke up and she rolled out of bed with a new hop and skip in her life because she realized she still had a purpose. She said, Jeff, I'm here because there's someone for me to care about. <laughs> I said, T, that's why you've always been here. She said, I didn't know it before, but I know it now and I want to suggest to you that's why all of us are here not to simply hear and consume the good news of God's love but to understand we're here for others and to see them and to reach for them and to care for them if God saw Hagar if God sees us we who follow this Jesus are invited to be out there looking for people to love, care about, and embrace. This morning we uh, celebrate Holy Communion, and um, I don't get to introduce communion very often. Um, I think for many of us it's something we do. It's, it's a habit. Uh, we do it. We um, act appropriately respectful. We try to remember the, the body and blood, the suffering of Jesus. We take the elements. We thank you, you Jesus. Maybe we say a prayer. Uh, I want to suggest to you that all that's fine, that I want you to feel that God loves you, that Jesus gave his life to teach us about his love. But I want to suggest to you that even in communion, there's a message from God. 
In the Catholic Church, they call the Eucharist or communion the Mass. The whole service is designed around this body broken and blood poured out. And the word Mass in the Latin comes from a sentence in their liturgy, ist en missen, ist en missen, the Mass, missen, Mass. It means you are sent. The idea is we, we come to the table not simply to be filled, but we come to the table to be filled so that we can go out, so that we can follow, not just believe in this Jesus, but follow in his ways. And so as you come to the table this morning, I invite you to take it all in. Let your heart be filled, but realize that we are filled so that we can go out and see and be a blessing to others. Let's pray.